Podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding That's page 1009 in your pew Bibles. The Bible should just fold open to that page right now. Chapter 12, beginning with verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, So terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks better than the word, speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, gracious Lord, we thank you that it is your eternal purpose to do your people good through your Son, Jesus Christ. And having not spared him, but given him up for us. How will you not with him freely give us all things? Lord, we look to you now, not because we deserve anything. We stand only in the righteousness of Jesus, but because he is our Savior, because you have pledged yourself to us in Christ, we look to you to do us good, that we might know your word, that we might grow in grace that we might conform our ways to Jesus Christ, no matter what we may go through. O Lord, make us a testimony and a witness to your love and your salvation. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it's, um, it's just human nature to want to protect yourself It's just human nature. It's natural for us if we hear of a flood coming to move out. If a fire breaks out in one part of a building, we hear the alarm and we we get out of there. Uh, We understand that uh, there's a, a danger. Then we must, and it's good to avoid it. That's just always the way we handle ourselves, to avoid death and destruction And that's kind of how these people were thinking to whom the writer uh, was writing that in the light of past experience that they had had as 
gives an account of it in chapter 10, of the loss of property. Even though at that point they had a, their eyes fixed on the future salvation that God had for them and, and, and accepted it joyfully. Now, years later, as they were facing another round of persecution and as they were facing the loss of property and perhaps imprisonment and perhaps the loss of their lives, naturally they thought, we've just got to protect ourselves this time. We, we just can't handle this. We've got to escape the danger. And it seemed relatively innocent to simply abandon the open confession of Jesus Christ in association with Messiah and just go back to worshiping Yahweh the way we used to. Just go back to worshiping, if you could think of it this way, the God of the Old Testament. Perhaps is how they thought of it. And yet the writer here is telling them in example after example, if you abandon the Messiah sent by this Yahweh, you abandon Yahweh. There is no Yahweh to go to. And he, he tries to show in contrast after contrast in Hebrews. And this is perhaps the apex of this contrast of what the old covenant was versus the new covenant and the richness and full flowering of the new covenant so that the glory of the new covenant completely overshadows that that the old covenant was temporary. It was provisional. It was inefficient. It, it couldn't do anything. It only could point to something else. In every part of it, it showed we can't do it. This can't accomplish atonement. This can't take away your sins. This can't get you to heaven ultimately. But it kept pointing there is something, someone else. And when that one came, it was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Christ means Messiah. And they now were seeking to abandon the Lord Jesus Christ to go back if it were possible, to just worshiping good old God <laughs> so that we won't get persecuted anymore. But of course, as he tells them again and again, you're leaving an earthly judgment, but you will be facing the most terrible, everlasting judgment. Is it worth the swap? You're gaining some temporary comfort and peace and in the process giving up eternal, everlasting comfort and peace. Is it worth the swap? This is one of the most brilliantly argumented portions of any literature, as many people have pointed out. One of the most excellent Forms of literature that we have, but it's all directed with this passionate plea, don't abandon your faith. And here in this apex of describing the contrast in chapter 12, he describes the whole old covenant under the terms of that moment when they stood at Mount Sinai and Moses received the law. It's not just... He's not just contrasting that moment with another moment, but he's using that to represent everything. The, the kind of color of all that there was in the old covenant 
as compared to the, its fulfillment now. See, it's not that there was no fellowship with God in the Old Testament. It's not that there was no intimacy at all with God in the Old Testament. But in the light of the new, this is what a return would be like. This is how the old was only provisional and it declared even at the giving of the law how needful it is that we have some way to get to this God. And you are now abandoning the only way, the only intimacy you could have with God to supposedly go back to God. And yet the only pathway is away from God. And to sum up what he says in verses 18 through 21, it basically points out the inapproachability of God to these people in the Old Testament. It's not a a thing of intimacy where they go into the presence of God. It only is fearful. There is fire and gloom and tempest. It's almost as though they're at the foot of the mountain trembling in bomb shelters, storm shelters, because the hurricane of God's holiness is so close to them. And he underscores the the minuteness of it, even if an innocent animal touches the mountain. How much more so for a conscious sinner to touch the mountain? A cow brushes up against the mountain and it's dead to reveal the holiness, the inapproachability of this God. Anything but intimacy, anything but gladness. This is not a scene of joy. It's a it's a scene of fearfulness. And under and it's underscored by verse 21. Even Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now, that's not literally put in the Old Testament. But it was with Jewish uh, preaching tradition and also what Moses said when he was on this same mountain with the burning bush, how he was afraid. And so the writer embraces that every human being at the mountain was trembling and could not endure it, begging that no word would be spoken. We hear this horrible trumpet sound that apparently just drove them crazy with the loudness and the fearsomeness of it. And words, the the sound of these words made them just tremble to say, oh, may he speak no more. So everything about it emphasizes the fearsomeness of this God. And you have to keep bearing in mind, it's because he is so purely good so infinitely full of love and goodness and purity that all of our hatred and meanness and pettiness and touchiness and murder and adulteries and jealousies that are in our hearts just look like so much filth and throw up in His presence. It's not that He's a bad God. It's that He's so... So infinitely good that we tremble at the thought of being with him. And of course, the Lord God is expressing through these physical outward signs just what a conscience should be thinking and feeling in the presence of such a holy God. Utterly inapproachable in ourselves. Utterly inapproachable.
But what's so interesting in this passage, he said that the word not is emphatic. This is though he says, not you have come to this mountain. And, and I'm going to stress this by the end again, that you and I have to constantly tell ourselves because we tend to make God, even in Christ, to be a God that is unapproachable when he is approachable in Christ. And we put ourselves under that mountain again and again in our lives. And we have to constantly tell ourselves, not Darwin. No, you have not come to that mountain, Darwin. You have not come to that mountain, Bill, Mary. You have come to a different mountain. And there's a huge contrast with this Greek word Allah that we turns it around. But on the contrary, verse 22, you have come. And here's the description of what we have come to. There's an ambiguity, an obscurity of God in these first verses. And yet now the door is thrown wide open, starting in verse 22, as it describes what we have come to. And this word you have come is the same word used for proselyte. One who comes and becomes a full-fledged member, you know, of a church or becomes a follower. And so it has, it's really a picture of when we come to God in Christ, this is what we come to. This is what it means. We are immediately thrust into this glorious city, this fellowship of angels and holy people of God himself. And the whole of our Christian life is cast into this pilgrimage to the city. When you come to Christ, then you automatically are a citizen of that city and now you are headed for that city. You already belong to that city. You have come. It's in the perfect tense. It's done. This is where you are. This, in a sense, is who you are. And it reminds me of something a while back we had... Uh, Lila Kate, our granddaughter. Yeah, another story about Lila Kate. Um, <clears throat> she spent a Saturday night with us and uh, we went with uh, Travis and Chrissy Stunts to lunch after, afterwards. And when Chrissy first saw Lila, uh, she said, as we had said similar things, but we'd never put it so concisely because we thought even when she was first born, she seemed like she was three, had the face of a three-month or six-month or one year. She just had this look about her. And the way Chrissy put it was, oh, look at her. She already has her face. <laughs> uh, I kind of thought that when I saw Ada Camille Jones, too, because I went in there. Jeff Wilkins was already there and, and uh, Matt and Sarah were there. And, and he promptly, wisely handed me the baby immediately, as he should have. Jeff did. And... Uh, I was just staring at her and I thought, I have seen this face before. Because <laughs> it was like I was, I was looking at Matthew or, or Hannah. It was just the same face. And they admitted, yeah, that's what we thought <laughs> when we saw her. We, we've been here before. But the point is of saying that you already have your face is that, you see, you've already 
got your home. You or it's already yours. There's not a waiting period. Of course, it is, as he says in chapter 13, verse 14, the city to come. It is the same city that he speaks of in chapter 11 of Abraham looking for the city that has no foundation, looking for that land uh, that is to come. And yet he says, you have come. So faith, as he started in chapter 11, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith lands you in that city. Faith makes you see, I've already come there. I'm a part of this congregation. This is who I am in Christ Jesus. And so this inapproachability of God that we see in the first verses is suddenly transformed into full and intimate access with God. There couldn't be a greater contrast between people trembling as in bomb shelters from the awful spectacle of the presence of God. Only Moses can go up there and Moses is scared to death. And suddenly we're in a party, a celebration in the midst with God. Astounding. And here again, you've not, you've not come to this place of trembling. You've come to this place of intimacy and rejoicing. It's Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. These all refer to the same thing. Zion was the mountain in which Jerusalem was founded. And there's mention of his love for that place because it was his dwelling place on earth. It was the special place of his manifestation on earth. And that's taken up to be the new Jerusalem. The Jerusalem from heaven, as Revelation says, that will come down for the people of God. And it's interesting that he uses this because sometimes it's heaven is spoken of as a temple, a place of worship. But when he's thinking of it as a society and thinking of the fellowship of it, then the city is used. The city to show that it's a place of protection. It's a place of order. It's a place of beauty. And of course, that's just a metaphor, but it is to teach us the comfort and the togetherness and the orderliness and the protection of this place that God has for his people. And so this is where you are. And notice to an innumerable to innumerable angels in festive, a festal gathering, or you could say a festive assembly. And joy is being spoken of here. Back in chapter four, verse nine, he spoke of the Sabbath rest, the the festive celebration of a Sabbath uh, celebration or Sabbath observance in that day. And so it's blessing and favor and rest and joy. And in Deuteronomy 39, we read of thousands of angels that attended God on Mount Sinai, but they were nowhere near us if we were there. They were up in the presence of God and we were distant from them. Now, now, as it were, they they sit next to you. 
They're a part of the congregation offering worship side by side in fellowship with God. Can you imagine say, hey, angels go to our church? And there's going to be a a unique glory to these beings that we will we will love them. They they love us. They will have a glory as angels. We'll have a glory eventually as those resurrected from the dead. And we'll have a delight in each other and a fellowship forever with angels. And, and we were shut out. We were in ourselves considered apart from Christ. We had no hope for the fellowship of these glorious beings. But now he says, you've come to the joyful party that angels are attending now. You're there. You're there. To the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Verse 23. The assembly is the ecclesia, the church. The assembling of, and notice, we're the firstborn. Uh, Israel was called the firstborn that I'm I'm bringing out of Egypt. That's why he punished Egypt so severely, because... She was ruining and destroying his his firstborn. The firstborn is the picture of the favored first child that has the double inheritance and the full responsibility of the ongoing family and household. But we all men and women are the firstborn. But we're the firstborn because Jesus is the firstborn, the firstborn from the dead, the firstborn of creation. Colossians one tells us. He's the true and the real firstborn. Now we're associated with Him in His exaltation and His power and His glory. And we, joined to Him, are the firstborn. And notice our names are inscribed in heaven, enrolled. And again, there's this... the. The perfect participle here, this verb, means that it is done and it's permanent and it's forever. And so we share with this one who was made lower than the angels and now is exalted at God's right hand. We share in that exaltation. We're actually called the firstborn in him. Therefore, we're heirs with him. Therefore, we actually belong there. How can we who deserve to be trembling at the foot of a mountain, running, fleeing from the mountain? We deserve to be those in Revelation of whom it is said they're crying out that the rocks might cover them and crush them so that they would not face the wrath of of God. And yet here we are in his presence. And then the next phrase Literally, and better translated, and to the judge, who is God over all. And to the judge, who is God over all. That's the literal order of the words. And so the emphasis is on coming to a judge. And we have to bear in mind that this gives the sense then of a scrutiny or a judgment over this whole Assembly. He is the judging God. This is the you might think, well, why that of all things that 
we were doing good, weren't we, until you had to bring the judge part in. And yet that's more glorious still because we've come to the judge. Unafraid. We've come to the judge with no fear, no possible condemnation to us. We're in the presence of the judge and he's, his favor is upon us. Who will judge you then? That's how Paul argues it in Romans 8. If he doesn't judge you, who is going to stand up and judge you? No one. And so, there's the sense then that we have come to this judge unafraid, rejoicing in his presence. Therefore, this liberty and boldness that we have before the judge means he's acquitted us. We're the ones who've already been vindicated. We're the ones who've been justified. We have the judge's favor upon us. We've come to a judge. Therefore, judgment is over for the people of God in that sense. In the sense of condemnation. And he's the God over all, indicating that he is the creator and sustainer of all things. We now get to come to Him and drink Him in forever and ever. This unlimited God whose glory rolls out before us. And we will run and leap like lambs on mountains to explore His beauty and greatness forever and ever. We've come to God to have God forever. But it's really... It's, it's so touching how He puts between... The God overall and Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, verse 24, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. It shows, it implies this God overall has powerfully intervened in broken sinners' lives to deliver and bring them to this point so that now they are spirits made perfect. Perfect in happiness, perfect in their enjoyment of God, perfect in their holiness, in their peace. They lack nothing in their relationship with God. They lack nothing in their relationship to other believers and to the angels themselves. And of course, this underscores more the fact that some have died and they are now spirits made perfect. Whereas the other phrase seems to embrace all of us and them together, the assembly of the firstborn. But you see, this is who God, through the mediator, what he has done for us. What he does for his people to make us perfect, to make us whole again, as we talked about last week. Brings peace in every way. And it says made perfect. It's again a verb that means it's stable. It's done. It's forever. And it cannot be changed. And it's interesting that he waits to the last phrase to speak of Jesus. Not because Jesus is the least important. but Because Jesus is the whole foundation and the reason all of this is true. 
because he's the mediator. He's the one who is guaranteed, who is earned, who is, as the writer of Hebrews has said before, that he has gone into the Holy of Holies. He has sacrificed his blood. He has offered it up to the Father. The Father has been propitiated. The Father is satisfied with his his own son's work. And now he smiles upon anyone who will trust in his son. And he receives them gladly. And he pours out all the benefits of his, that he is capable of as God upon their lives because of what his son has done. And then this wonderful last phrase, the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, Abel's blood was such a horrible sign of the gravity of the curse that had fallen on mankind. A brother murders his own brother. So, such a symbol of what had happened to Adam and Eve in the fall. Almost immediately to to give the full brunt, the full weight of the horror of their disobedience. And... This blood, as you read in that passage, cried out for vengeance. It cried out for their death. It cried out for Cain's punishment. And so it, it was a symbol, an symbol of, of the whole fall and the judgment that had fallen upon mankind. That, that death and sin cries out for our judgment and condemnation. But Jesus' blood cries out, and, and hear this, it speaks, it, it, it cries out, just as that was a cry to punish, here's a cry to forgive, here's a cry for mercy, here's a cry for all the blessings of God, for God to pour out the richness of His goodness upon us. And, and you think of the The contrast of a brother killing a brother, shedding his blood, and now Jesus shedding his own blood and calling us brothers, as he does in Hebrews 2. What a different, different message is being spoken to us by this blood Speaking to us of grace, we who, like Cain, are murderers and sinners. And yet the blood of Christ speaks comfort to our hearts. And I want to ask, in closing, you this question. Which mountain, not just in your head, like, yeah, well, I know where I belong or I know what good doctrine is. What mountain do you live under and in? Do you live, even as a person who professes Christ, do you basically live on a performance basis with God? Every day hoping that He likes you? Hoping that you might could get accepted? And when you have a better day, you feel a little better about maybe He likes me more today? Do you, do you make God out to be a God who has no mercy and kindness and forgiveness and, and you don't rejoice in knowing that He loves you and accepts you and, and that really governs 
the way you live, the way you pour yourself out to other people. You might ask yourself this question, do I need to hear that not in my own life? Do I need to hear, Darwin, you have not come to this mountain. This is not what Christ is about. This points to how much you need Christ and its contrast all the more shows you the intimacy and access and the favor that you have with God. And to say that this is my situation, that I'm basically have only hope of God's judgment. I, I'm so poor, I'm, I'm so sinful that I must simply tremble before his wrath and judgment. Dear person, that is to say no to Christ. It is to reject Christ. It is to say you are not a savior for me. You can do me no good. And even though the Father Himself offers you to me so that the Father might embrace me wholeheartedly and forever in His love, I say no to it. You see, we can be victims of our own self-pity, our own need to, to be picked upon, our own need to have a lousy life, our own need to feel like things don't go our way. Our own need to feel like worse things happen to me than anybody else. My life is this. My life is that. A whining pity party that goes on and on and on and on. Because we really don't want the responsibility of being loved by God. And it is a responsibility. To be truly loved by Him. To be truly forgiven in your brokenness, to, to admit just how bad you are and to open your life up to his love. And then to know that you're going to do that to other people and be open and frank with your sin and, and other believers will love you and you begin to have to forgive them. It's so fun to be self-righteous. It's so fun to look down your nose. It's so fun to nurse grudges. No, you can't do that. If you welcome the love of God in Jesus Christ. You can't do that and be a, a citizen of this city. You can't have the implosion, the narcissism of living in your own sin and guilt. Christian life is it's very interesting because it just waylays you. It, it devastates you as to who you are. And you can't believe the depths of your own sin and your rejection of God and the extent of what you will do and think about other people. And then comes the love of God to embrace you in that situation. It is amazing. But the self-righteous and those who want to hold on to their guilt and stay at the mountain, Mount Sinai, will never know the freedom and the intimacy and the access and then their lives to pour out in love to other people as they have been loved. So that's the simple question. Where are you living? Let us pray. Oh Lord, thank you that you have delivered us, delivered us from the death and destruction of our own sin. You've come to us. You've shown us how much we need your grace. Convicted us of our sin. 
No, Lord, you've given us the precious Lord Jesus who takes away all of our sin and brings us into the city of the living God to innumerable host of angels in festal gathering to God Himself to bring us into the presence gladly of the Judge Himself. Oh, Lord Jesus, what You have accomplished for us May we never abandon it. Lord, may we not abandon the joy of it day by day. May we not harden ourselves against it so that we just shrug our shoulders at it. Lord, we we confess to you that's what happens. We confess to you that we can become deadened in a minute to all that you've done for us. And then we, we must necessarily move to some form of self-righteousness, some form of licentiousness and giving our life to lust and idols because we no longer have our hearts moved by affection for what Christ has done for us. Lord, guard our hearts. We confess to you our weakness. We confess to you our unbelief. Grant, Lord, continually that we would believe, that we will trust, that we will taste Taste and see that the Lord Jesus is good. Draw us after yourself. And if there is anyone here who would depend on anything else but Jesus Christ to gain access and intimacy with the God who made them, may they now turn from it all and embrace and trust in Christ alone. And even at that moment, enter in the city, the general assembly of the firstborn whose names are enrolled in heaven. Bless us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America.